0: We'll read Psalm 46 in a moment, but before we do, let me tell you about James Cardinale. He was a bad dude. He was a well-known mobster that had been caught and admitted to multiple counts of homicide and a host of other mob-related activity. This was sometime in the 1980s. But when 1990 came... James Cardinale was not in jail. He was in a witness protective program. His three counts of murder had been reduced to one count of manslaughter, for which he served a mere five years. And now he was out of prison, but he was scared for his life. Much like in the movies, the government, the U.S. government, had struck a deal with this mobster to uh, drastically reduce his charges if he were to become a criminal informant. The government wanted help bringing down members of the more dangerous, more notorious Gambino family. And so instead of life in prison, he took the deal for five years. And the deal was attractive, with one major exception. He was going to snitch on the mob... And so he was terrified. Apparently, mob informants don't have a long life expectancy. And so the US Marshals promised a very high level of protection in the witness protection program. It sounds like it's out of a movie, right? But it was on the internet, so it's true. (laughs) He was promised a new town, a new name, a new job, a new birth certificate, social security number, and uh, regular security. So the desperate Cardinale took the deal. So, his five years in prison went by and he was released on probation into the witness protection program. But after one year in the program, he had had enough. In a, in, in a turn of events that shocked the press and horrified citizens that were around him, he went to the press telling his story. I mean, he told everything. And central to his story was how completely useless. The witness protection program was. He claimed that in spite of all the protection that had been promised, the only thing he had received was a new driver's license. And apparently the protection was so thin that he was terrified for his life, came out of hiding, and publicly threatened to return to a life of crime if something had not been done. This is what he said. Are any children in here? <laughs> right, okay. He said, I'm the worst guy you've got in the city. I rob and I kill. All the locks on your doors and your guns won't do me any good if I return to crime. He was trying to get some protection. He was terrified. And the story had a massive effect. Of course, it was an embarrassment to the U.S. Marshal Service and jeopardized cases all around the country. And if you think about it, if you can understand why it's embarrassing to the marshals. It's an insult to their competency. His fear, right, in spite of the protection that he had been offered, his fear made it clear that he had no confidence in the protection that they could provide. Have you ever thought of that dimension of fear before? Fear and all of its siblings, whether it's anxiety or uh, panic. Fear is an insult to your protector. If you have someone who has sworn to protect you, who is capable and who is with you and is going to take care of you, and if you are still afraid, you are insulting your protector. We know that one of the resounding themes of the scriptures, especially the Psalms, is that we as Christians never have any legitimate reason to be afraid. Not because bad things can't happen. They can. We know that. Not because your circumstances are guaranteed to improve. They may not. Instead, God is concerned with you and I knowing and believing this incredible truth that we will see again and again tonight God is with you. Now, that sounds like a platitude, but it's true. God is with you. That's the dominant theme of our psalm this evening, and so it's the main idea of our sermon. God is with you. Let's look at Psalm 46 together, and let's, let's hear his word read. It's a well-known, beloved psalm. Listen carefully as I read. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear that the earth gives way, that the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, that the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She, she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So come, come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to the end of the earth to cease. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, church, and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's go to this God who has promised to be with us. Father, I'm reminded that there are eternal issues at stake here tonight. Certainly the eternal destiny of our lives is at stake, but Lord, your glory and our eternal joy are all at stake. And Father, that is far too much to ride on any one man or even us as hearers. And so I'm pleading and praying. That your promise to be with us, that, that would manifest itself in a very real way, that as your spirit who dwells in us, that as you as you proclaim your word to your people, that it would sprout up and bear fruit in our lives. Father, please do this and receive all the glory, overcome every obstacle and every deficiency, and do this, that we might be happy in you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Psalm 46 is a psalm of confidence, of confidence. It's it's a psalm that is written not just to to make you feel good, though it probably does, but it's written to compel you to feel and think in a certain way. That's what the psalms, in part, are intended to do. They are to invite you into a spiritual experience of of a relationship with God where you would experience him in a certain way. In fact, I'm confident that for every single one of us here tonight, God intends that we would leave here with an attitude adjustment. You need an attitude adjustment? I think you do, right? I know I do. We need to leave with a greater confidence in God who is with us. I don't think the main goal of the psalm is to instruct us in, in the sense that uh, we don't primarily need to leave with new facts, new bits of knowledge, some, some, new, some new piece of information about God. Uh, that may happen. I hope it does. But I've been praying mainly that we would leave here tonight with a deep, deep joy-producing, sin-killing confidence that God is more capable than we originally thought. And though even when our world is literally falling apart, we should trust Him completely. And that's because He is with us. Now this psalm has three paragraphs and, and it's dynamic and the, and the themes overlap and they're woven in and out. So it doesn't cleanly you know, break into sections. So, so we'll keep our sections very loose tonight. And I'll, I'll, I guess I'll walk through them about a paragraph at a time. But all throughout this psalm we see a celebration of the presence of God of the presence of God. You can see it, we call this sometimes a bookend, right? Verse 1 and verse 11, the beginning and the end of the psalm, you will see that this is a theme, the presence of God. But it's also in the middle. Verse 5, verse 7, we see God is in the midst of her and the Lord of hosts is with us. But right at the beginning of the psalm, we can see this intended effect. The psalmist declares in first in verse one a statement that he is convinced is true. That for us the church, God is our refuge. He is our strength, and he is a very present help in trouble. And since verse one is true, is true. Look what he says in verse two. Therefore, we we won't fear. <laughs> We won't fear. Because verse 1 is true, verse 2 can be true. Therefore, we will not fear that the earth gives way. Friends, the pattern is clear. The pattern of spiritual devotion, the pattern of attitude is very simple for us. If God is like he says he is in verse 1, then verse 2 should be true about us. If God is a very present help, then we should be a people who do not have any familiarity with fear. Do you see? Right there in verse 1 and 2. If God is who he says he is, and if you actually believe that, not, not that you say that you believe it, but if you actually believe it, the intended effect will be verse 2. You will not fear. If you actually believe that, your life will show it. Paragraph 1, we could call this, this is the worst case scenario. Verses 1 through 3. If you're going to label it, label it worst case scenario. The section describes this catch-all generic category of trouble here in verse 1. And then in verse 2, things get more specific. Quite a bit worse, actually. In verse 2, the earth is giving way. Now that is a bad day. Right? The Earth is giving way, and the mountains are being hurled into the sea, and the language right the effect of this language should be really clear for us. It is a picture of a world that is coming apart. This is, in a sense, it's creation language. Or should we say it's decreation language. The orders that God established at creation are being reversed. They're being turned upside down. They're they're being ripped apart at the seams. No longer is water separated from the dry land. No longer are the mountains immovable as they are in their proper place, bearing fruit. Instead, there's water that roars and foams. We've seen time and time again that water in the Bible is a picture of chaos, of uncertainty, of danger. And here we have the two most immovable objects in the world. The earth and the mountains. And what's happening? They're being moved. They're being uprooted. The earth has returned, it seems, to the chaos of Genesis 1-2. It seems inhabitable. And of course the language is figurative, right? We, we, We understand that. But... It's effective, right? The the figure is that the world is ending. The world is being ripped apart at the seams. And it's hyperbole, but it's very easy to apply, isn't it? Have there been times when your world has been turned upside down? Almost every person in this room that I've talked to, I've heard about trouble in your life this week. If you talk to me, you'll hear about trouble. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Trouble. Maybe it's a big thing. Maybe it's a crushing diagnosis or the end of a marriage or a massive betrayal or the loss of a job or some financial hit. Maybe it's something big. Or I, I don't know. But I don't think the application here is only for life's big catastrophes. But it's for all of our difficulties. In Genesis, think about how this fits in the picture of the Bible, right? In Genesis, we see that the effect of sin on God's good creation is corruptive, right? It's, it, 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 it destroys, it, it adds chaos. In one sense, the very effects of sin are catastrophic, right? You will surely die. But in another sense, every part of our lives is touched by the corrosive effect of sin, I mean, that's, that's really how sin works in the world. It is actively decreating what God has made to be good. And you and I experience this every day in a fallen world. Sin and suffering always work to decreate God's good creation. And whether we're the ones sinning, decreating, or whether we're experiencing the decreation, we all know what this is like. Our world feels. Like it's being torn apart. Sometimes we face our worst case scenarios. Sometimes our worlds fall apart with a massive tragedy. I just spoke with a friend who received a devastating diagnosis. He said everything changed. Other times our worlds crumble slowly. Could be disagreement at home. Could be mild aches and pains in your knee. Could be trouble at work. I don't know. Fear and anxiety are not just reserved for the big, th- big things, right? The bulk of your life is is struggling with the small things, and we experience them as we do, and as we face all sorts of suffering. It does not take much for our worlds to feel unstable, does it? You ever been in a bad mood? <laughs> right? Have you ever wondered what? Why am I in a bad mood? And you just, if you like really trace it back, you're like. breakfast was cold? Our worlds are so unstable. There are times, especially when we're young, right? We feel invincible, like our lives are just coming together, right? But most of the time, right, we realize how fragile our lives really are. Sometimes life can feel like it's a, like a banquet on a cruise ship, right? Steady sailing, good friends, good food, right? Life is good. But I found that most of the time, life is like trying to have a candlelight dinner in a canoe. (laughs) If you move, you're going under, right? Peace is so precarious, the absence of trouble in your life. So, the question for us tonight is this When your world is unstable, what do you do? Now I think there's a danger, right? Some of you may be sitting here. We might have a case of sermonitis. I don't. I made that up, right? But it, but it's this thing where you like we get what we're saying. Like you get what I'm saying, but like you're just not feeling it, right? It's, it's, just, it's like this concept that's like over here, and it's not like in your heart. And I, I understand that, right? You you may like get the concept, but you don't feel like your life is falling apart, and and I feel, I feel like there's just this danger for us. To hear the word and kind of let it go in here and out one other, out the other ear, without let it traveling to our hearts. And so, I'm going to ask you to do something tonight. Right? You should have a piece of paper. This works, and maybe a pen if you don't. That's okay. But I just want you to just take just a few seconds and think for a moment about what's going on in your life. And I want you to write down either one or two, maybe three. Just just one or two circumstances that are making you anxious. They doesn't have to be some terrible thing. But like, what made your day hard? What? A few ways your life is being shaken. Just jot one or two down. Anything that's weighing on your heart, making you feel anxious or sad or afraid... Here's what I'm asking you to do. Jot it down or keep it in your mind or type it on your phone or whatever. And as we work throughout the sermon, try to apply these truths to that specific thing. It's like an exercise, right? So that we don't risk hearing these truths and just letting them float in space. But let's go back to this question. What is it? What do you do when your world is unstable? Well, the psalmist tells us right away what we shouldn't do, right? We shouldn't be afraid. And I think we could add to that, right? With fear is anxiety in all its forms, right? We shouldn't be bitter. We shouldn't be cranky. We shouldn't be despairing. We shouldn't be grumbling. Uh-oh. We shouldn't be complaining. But let's keep going. Let's look at this next paragraph. Verses four through seven, we hear about the city of God, the city of God, the place of God's people. We see this in verse 4, where we learn about the city of God. The best, pe- best part of the city of God is not the golf courses. The best part of the city of God is that this is where God is. Do you see that in verse 4? It's the location of his presence. And think about what a contrast this is to verses 3 and verses 2, right? Because here we see another picture of water. Verse 4, we read of a river whose streams make glad the city of God. How dramatically different is that from the water in verse 3? The water that rages and foams in chaos? We read again about a river. A river. Rivers are a common theme throughout the scriptures. It's, it, the idea of a river is a powerful image that brings up lots of different biblical ideas. But if we think about it from the beginning, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, where we read that Eden had a river that was flowing out of it. And from this river, all of the world was given life. Right, we understand how a river is life-giving, especially if you're in the desert, right? Or especially if you're a city that is besieged, It's a sign of blessing. And in the Bible, God's presence is often closely connected with the theme of river. We've seen this in John 4. Not only is the idea that God is present, especially in Genesis 2, at the source of the river, the idea is that good things flow from God and they flow out to all the world. If you want true blessing, well, every good and perfect gift comes from God. He's a river. But we also think of places like Ezekiel chapter 47 where we see this strange image of a temple and out of the temple, from the very throne itself, is a river that's flowing. And then in Revelation 22, we see a river. The river of the water of life which flows from the throne of God and gives life to the entire city of New Jerusalem. Do you see the pattern Rivers in the Bible symbolize the blessing that comes from God, from the very presence of God. Rivers are where we get true life, true abundant life. And here God is pictured as the very center of the universe and from the very source from where all good things flow. Perhaps this helps us understand with more context why Jesus would say something so strange to the woman at the Samaritan well. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. Jesus had special access to this water Oh, my friends, there's so many glorious lessons and applications for us, but let me, just, let me just draw out one for us. You can do this in a dozen ways. I had a hard time deciding, but think of it like this. When our worlds are being turned upside down, when the sky seems like it may be falling, We need to remember that true life is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in what we own and what we experience. It's not found in what we might lose by the problems in our life. True life is found in God alone. And He, He alone is the one stable part of your life. And in the middle of the storm, you need to know this, God is with you and he has access to all life. When that truth has sunk deep into your hearts, it will transform how you experience problems. It will transform your confidence The contrast in the Psalms continue. Not only do we see this contrast of the waters, right? The foaming waters of chaos compared to the glad river of God. But we also see the city of God, right? And then the nations. Verse 6. Verse 6 shows us how all around us the nations are the nations of the world, the people of the world, the ethnos of the world are raging in violence and conflict. All around us the culture is reeling and lurching and tottering, seems to cave in on itself if you follow the news. Those who have built their house on the sand are constantly in danger of being swallowed. But not this city. Not the city on the mountain of God. Friends, there are untold evils that we can experience in this world. The psalm tells us the earth itself can give way. The mountains themselves can be hurled into the sea. But friends, there is a mountain that cannot be moved. There is a place, a place of residence that is secure. The earth may give way, but there's a mountain that cannot be moved. And there is a city on this mountain, a city built of precious stones. Stacked upon a chief cornerstone. And guess why it is so great there? It's because God is there. God is there. It is a temple. It is a city. It is a place of life. All the images of salvation in these verses are beautiful, right? The promise that God will help when the morning dawns. Do you see that in verse 5? That is not just like, oh, it's going to happen tomorrow. But that is language that goes back to the Exodus. Which in the Bible is like the great picture of salvation. that, That they learned that, wow, this is a God who saves. I mean, we saw what he did for Noah, but that was just a few people, right? This is a God who saves an entire nation, God has a deep resume of salvation in the midst of raging nations and raging seas. Remember this? So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. God is so good at saving people in the midst of chaos and he will bring his judgment. Even more all the world all around us rages yet what does God need? Look at the text. Verse 6. All it takes is God's voice. (laughs) We just got a new puppy at our house. He does not care what I say, right? And not at all, right? I say stuff to him, he doesn't even know his name, right? My, my voice has so little power. God's voice, God has defeated armies with a word. The text shows us his enemies dissolve. <laughs> Sounds like an action movie. Do you see the incredible picture of safety? Safety amidst the storm. Verse 7 makes it obvious. Why, why? Why are we so safe if we're in this city? Oh, God is with us. The city is safe because God is there. He is with us. He will help us. Duh. Right? And, and He's the Lord of hosts. Do you know what? Verse 7. Do you know what that means? That means He's the God of armies. The God of armies. I don't know if this is a host of angelic armies or a host of Israelites. It doesn't matter. All he needs is a voice, right? He could send in like toddlers with Twinkies and his, his purpose will be accomplished. Remember clay pots and yellow? I mean, just think about some of the deliverance in the Bible. He, he, <laughs> he beat the Philistines with a little boy, right? Just ask David. Just ask Gideon. <laughs> We're going to yell at you. And God will win. Just ask Joshua. Just ask the disciple. Do you honestly think that God is stressed by your problem? Tell, tell me again. Like look back down at the thing you wrote. New perspective maybe? Why are you anxious? Verse 7 tells us the God of Jacob is our fortress. This language, the God of Jacob, all oh, that should make you think covenant. That should make you think covenant, electing love that God has placed on Abraham and his descendants. And we have been grafted in to this incredible covenant, and he is our fortress. The word here speaks of something that's being stored up really tall, like in an in inaccessible height in our house, heights are used to strategic advantages. Shoes are stored off the ground away from our chew happy puppy. Kara stores toys out of Addie's reach and Addie stores toys out of Roman's reach. And I noticed recently that Halloween candy is stored out of everyone's reach but the tall guy, right? Beloved, you need to be reminded of this. Even though you feel exposed, even though you are right in the middle of the swarm of storm, he has you out of reach. Even though you feel exposed, even though you live your life right in the middle of brokenness, even though brokenness might be in your very bedroom, God is our fortress. He lifts us out of the chaos and into safety. Let that shape your day tomorrow. Run to him. This last paragraph, verses 8 through 11, it's a a picture of peace. It gives us this future vision of peace, right? Of a time when wars cease, when bows are broken, when spears are shattered. A time when chariots are burned. A time when the effects of the fall will be only a memory. You realize that's going to be the bulk of your existence. (laughs) Looking back on these years of difficulty, wondering why we didn't have more confidence in the Lord, remembering suffering, just like it's a distant memory. The picture here is of a world that has been devastated and then forcibly disarmed by the Lord of hosts, where sin and violence and death and flat tires and cavities and harsh words will be brought to their end. Oh, friends, how much do you long for that day? I find myself sometimes, I, I, I don't let myself think about it. Which is terrible. That day is coming. Though we experience a small taste of this peace now, we really do. We really do. We yearn for the full force of God's kingdom to come. And for him to set up his reign clearly and visibly and fully on the earth. In verse 10 we read how God is uttering to the nations. He says, be still and know that I am God. It's a command to be still. This isn't a call. I don't think this is primarily directed to you and me, Christian. It's not primarily a call for you to feel inner peace and to, and to, and to quiet your life and, and consider God, though that certainly I think is a, is a distant implication. Rather, it is a rebuke. It's a rebuke to the turbulent and rebellious nations of the world. Because God reigns. And for the world to enjoy the blessing of God, which comes from the presence of God, the world must come under the reign and and the lordship of Christ. And so we are called, verse 8, Come and see. Look. Come behold the works of the Lord. Friends, I plead with you, this is a wonderful reason to read the Bible. You need to behold the works of the Lord again and again. He has done marvelous things. And the God of Israel and the God of Jacob is the God of Trinity Baptist Church. We need to drink in with our eyes the power of God. We need this picture of a divine warrior who has an army of angels, but he can fight with words. He is an exalted king who is resplendent in his glory and in his power. And with this, we too are, with all the world, called to submit. To submit to the exaltation of Christ. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He better be exalted in the church. And he better be exalted in our lives. That is going to happen. But this exaltation is happening now in our hearts as we submit to him. As we say no to pornography. As we love the difficult person. As we give when we don't have anything left. He is the exalted king and we're to realize in verse 10 that he will have his worldwide exaltation and we are to bow now because we know this is coming. For Christ will have his glory. We could give so much more attention to the words of this beautiful psalm, but I want to draw your attention to this final verse here in verse 11. It's a verse that reminds us of our source of confidence. This is not a, hey, feel-good sermon. It's going to all be better. It's going to all work out. Think better. Think more. It's not that at all. Instead, it's a reminder of our source of confidence, of where our protection really comes from. The text says, get it clearly in your minds, verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. A God with armies is with you. Don't miss this source of confidence. Don't miss this source of protection. The source of confidence from this psalm comes from the happy, life-giving, protective presence of God himself. The comfort is not that your circumstances get better. The comfort is a person. It's personal. The protection is a person. Just think with me throughout history, throughout Israel's history, how God has manifested his presence among his people, right? Because if we're saying this whole psalm is about God being with us, and that's where all the good stuff comes, let's think about how that, how that works, right? Think about how that works in the Bible. Sometimes in the Bible, God's presence was with a pillar, pillar of clouds, or fire. You remember that? That's a fun story. God himself would go before his people, and Moses said, If you don't go, I'm not going. Sometimes it was with the Ark of the Covenant, right? They would carry it ahead of them into battle, and even idols would bow down and worship in front of the Ark. And then, of course, we know God dwelt clearly among his people in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But where is the clearest picture? Where do you think is the ultimate manifestation of God among his people? Or should we say who? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father Full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the ultimate manifestation of God among his people, right? You've heard it before. Mark told us a few months ago the word dwelt, it tabernacled, it set up residence among us. In the incarnation, Jesus Christ brings all the glorious realities of God's life giving presence, and he hand delivers them. He came. Among us, Jesus brought in His body all of the realities of the temple. Which why we well, don't need it anymore. He brought all the glory. He brought all the access to God. He brought all the sacrifice. He brought all the blessing. Think with just think for a minute about how many concepts from Psalm 46 appear in the Gospels. Uh, Think think about the life of Christ and how that fits with Psalm 46. Do you remember a time in Jesus' life when he was on raging, foaming water? Do you remember? Did we not see Christ calming the raging sea with the word and what did he say? I've heard that before. He awoke and rebuked the wind. (laughs) I'd like to be there for that. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Man, that sounds a whole lot like verse 10 to me. Peace, be still. In the Gospels, we see Christ exercise his power over demons. The significance is not that that's a cool party trick or that he just really likes people. The significance is that Jesus Christ rules over all the dark dominions of the world and the spiritual forces of evil. Jesus came preaching the exaltation of God, like we see in verse 10. He came proclaiming the kingdom, the worldwide reign of Christ himself. He said, get ready, it's coming and it's here. He comes proclaiming the news that one day all will bow down and know that he is God. And everyone hated him for it. They tried to kill him. But even more than that, think of the ultimate mission of Jesus Christ. Because Christ came not just to calm the seas, calm the seas and solve our health problems. But he came to establish peace between God and man. He came, he said, I'm like a road. He said, I'm the way. I'm the way to get to the Father. I'm the way, I'm the access to the source of truth, to life. Remember? The very life that comes from the Father. And he did that by making a way for us. To restore us who are alienated by sin to the very presence of God. Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul writes... But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. In Christ, we have access to living water. That we have access, that means we have access to all the blessing and all the security that comes from God's presence. And and friends, don't forget, we have the Spirit of God Himself. That's really the primary picture of water in the Bible, is the Spirit who is among, who is in us. And so in a very real sense, in 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 an absolutely concrete sense, God is with you because the Spirit dwells in you, if you know Christ by faith. How much more do you need to hear? How much more do our hearts need to be persuaded? Can we not see Jesus Christ, God among us, hanging on a cross for sinners who are alienated from God by our own decision to secure an everlasting relationship with God, the source of all blessing? There is no true happiness apart from God. Remember that in your time of temptation. Now I want you to think back for a moment, back to that thing you wrote down, the thing you have in your mind. The thing or things that are shaking your world. And let me remind you again, your struggle is real. I don't, I don't want to make light of that at all. All the different things that are represented here. But let me just remind you, God is a very present help in trouble. And the Lord of hosts is with you. Friends, there is a difference in confessing something that's true and confidence. It's one thing to confess that you believe that God is with you, and it's another thing altogether to have an active, functional confidence that God is with you. And so I pray tonight that our faith would be strengthened. And so if I could close with just a few verses from Hebrews 12 that in light of Psalm 46 might sound eerily familiar. Listen to this. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he is promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Father, I pray that you would bolster our faith and that as we leave here tonight and as we face our problems, even tonight and tomorrow, Lord, that you would give us a strong new confidence that you are with us. Thank you for Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, who is with us. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.